welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Tim Delaney, co-founder of Immersion Investments. Tim founded Immersion Investments last year with David Polanski. They manage a concentrated portfolio of small and microcap equities. In this episode, Tim talks about what type of companies and situations they like to invest in, their research process, and then discuss two companies he's bullish on for the long term. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim. Hi, Tim. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Oh, John, thank you for having me. Could you give a brief introduction to yourself and Immersion Investments and and what is the objective of your fund? Yeah, sure. Um, So Tim Delaney, I've been in finance for 25 years and in the equity markets for uh, about 20 of those, uh, mostly on the buy side. In June of 2021, my partner, David Polanski, and I launched Immersion. And it's an investment partnership that we're trying to focus on sub-5 billion market cap companies. We're highly concentrated. We can own up to 20 names, but currently only own 12, with the top four making up about 70% of our AUM. Our anchor investor is a family office. That's taxable, so we're long-term. Um, we're also long only, uh, so we try to be tax efficient. And generally speaking, our mandate is to find companies that can compound annually at 20% net of fees over a three-year rolling basis. And what type of companies do you like to invest in? What's uh, sort of the ideal immersion setup? You know, it's, it's funny because um, we, we really are company specific. It's an interesting question. We had an institutional allocator ask us, uh, you know, what's your style? Are you, are you growth or value? Um, and, I, and I think my, my quip might have been a little off-putting to him because I basically said, we're in the money-making style. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we are, we're, we're agnostic, right, to, to growth or value um, or, or domestic or international. We, we focus on the company itself. And so we, we really are, are bottom-up and kind of see where the company takes us. But if you look at our portfolio, you'll you'll find basically five types of investments, right? And these are sort of outputs, not inputs. So you can't really really search for these companies, but when you find them, the ones that are in our portfolio tend to to fall into five distinct categories, right? So the first one is the underdog. It's really overlooked. People don't like it. Investors don't like it. There are a lot of surface level issues with it. You know, oftentimes it's too small. It's, it doesn't have a great float. Uh, it's not in an index. Almost always there is no analyst coverage. So, you know, for us, when we're looking at, a, at an underdog, we get excited about it because the economics are there, the management team's there, um, the product's there. What it really needs is to, learn some IR, right? Some, some uh, investment relations or to tell their story a little bit better or to try and improve their liquidity and get some other analysts involved. The, the next type is the babushka doll. You know, when we came out with the babushka doll, people came back at us and said, oh no, it's the Russian nesting doll. So whatever you want to call it. Basically, uh, you have a, a large legacy company, but within it, there is something growing. Um, there's an asset that that is being again overlooked by the market, and uh, it's growing fast. Uh, it's very profitable. Management 
also has to be able to recognize this and put the resources to it. So, you know, oftentimes you'll find management that'll have a jewel within it, but they kind of ignore it because it's not part of the core business that they've done. Um, so that's another piece that we've looked at. The social pariah, that's, that's pretty easy. They're hated. Uh, generally, they've burned investors in the past. They've done something really unsavory or you know, they had a failed IPO. Basically, some other catalyst has come in to change it. And usually that's a management change or a brand new direction or you know, you've really gotten rid of the, the bad actors or uh, a new product line that, that isn't as distasteful. And then we have the ugly duckling. It's exactly as the name says. It's a subscale business. Uh, it's growing rapidly. It doesn't look pretty right now because it's investing all of its uh, free cash flow and cash flow into the product itself. And so it, it doesn't, doesn't look good. But as you sort of spring uh, the ugly duckling along, it, it turns into the swan. And then the doubted champion is our final one, which basically is a company that keeps on performing well and keeps on growing at very accelerated rates. And the rest of the market looks at it and says, geez, they can't keep doing that. But they do. Um, and they continue to do it. So, you know, oftentimes, again, if you if you break these down, the doubted champion is going to be in the traditional quote unquote growth bucket, where a lot of the others are in the traditional value bucket. So again, we don't care um, about growth or value. And uh, we're agnostic again to whether it's in the US or international. We tend to shy away from speculative companies, very binary companies and mining companies, um, things of that nature. Historically, we have straight, uh, stayed away from the financial sector, um, banking in particular, just because to look into see the quality of the loans. However, we've continued to do due diligence. There are some really high quality banks um, that we may invest in at some point or, or something like that. But currently, they are not in the portfolio. Yeah, I love the five names that you've um, given to each there. Which one do you think will um, bring you the best returns? Well, hopefully all of them, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, our, you know, our, our biggest, our biggest um, positions tend to have a, a social pariah and a babushka doll component to them, or or more than one of these components involved, right? Oftentimes, you know, you can have the babushka doll and the ugly duckling combined into one. Um, it's very easy to have the social pariah and the underdog sort of put into one. For, for us, we really believe that any one of those scenarios is going to bring you the 20% IRR that, that we need um, as, part of, as part of our mandate. Okay. And you say you invest internationally. But what is your discovery uh, strategy? How do you find these companies? Yeah. So you mentioned Twitter and tw Twitter's great. You know, everybody with an idea likes to throw up a, a piece of Twitter. So we do have some trusted, some trusted folks that if they say something, we, we take a look at it and, and kick the tires um, and things of that nature. But, you know, the discovery on international isn't that different from the discovery in the U.S., right? You, you sort of read about a company that is doing something interesting or something different, um, and you go through the same processes. You, you just gather as much data as you possibly can. You synthesize it. And then you start to sort of 
see what they're trying to achieve. Um, and then from there, you start to go into the management team and seeing, you know, are these people able to execute? You know, and Europe's, Europe's a, little, a little funny, a little interesting in the sense that, you know, historically companies, it's, it's, hard, to be, it's hard to be a social pariah in, in Europe. Um, although, you know, uh, we, do have, we do have one of those uh, in, in the investments over there, because once you're branded over there, it's, you, you, are, you are shunned. You know the amount of international or or domestic European funds versus in, in the U.S. the international uh, investment funds there aren't there aren't as many and they're not as forgiving. And then talking to some portfolio managers over there, the path from being an analyst to a PM seems to be a little bit more difficult. And so in that sense, and again, I'm I'm not trying to to bash my brethren in investments uh, on the international side of the pond here, but um, they tend to be a little bit more conservative. So for us, when we're looking at that, we, we fly over there, right? So uh, my partner, David, was in the Netherlands at the beginning of November. I was in Spain at the end of November, um, meeting with management teams and, and kicking the tires and talking to competitors and talking to suppliers, really you know, doing, doing our nitty gritty due diligence. When we look at it, the fair value of you know what that company can be we may discount it slightly just because it is a european company unless that investor base is more from the, from the us because the us it tends to be able to stomach some some pe expansion and that's not to say that you know the the, the uk can definitely they they have their share of of hyper growth names um, over there but uh, I think for for the rest of Europe, you have to really take a look and sort of adjust your fair value slightly. And I'm not talking drastically, but 10% or something like that is is not out of the question. I think it's a good good observation. Out of the, the 12 stocks you say you have in your fund, can, can we talk about two of the stocks you're most bullish on for the long term? And, and what was your thesis for investing? A, a very interesting one that sort of falls under the social pariah and well, not well. Ugly Duckling, I guess, too, um, is is a domestic stock here, right? It's a legacy housing. So they are the fourth ranked player in in manufactured homes. They have two lines of business. They have the manufactured housing line, uh, which is the traditional line, and then they have the lending piece. Essentially, when you have the manufactured housing they sent they they will sell to independent retailers and then they will sell to their own stores and they will sell to mobile parks and and within those they they have a financing component that they can use when they are taking their cash flow from the manufactured housing and putting it into their lending book so when we first heard about them, you know, they're the fourth ranked player. Um, we were thinking about, okay, what is going on in in the world? And obviously, COVID was was and and still to a lesser extent raging, um, and the housing market was unaffected and and continued to do well. And uh, we said, okay, well, low cost housing seems to be a, a pretty interesting place to be. You know, and, and frankly, uh, my partner was looking was was looking at housing at the time. Not that he was looking at manufactured housing, but it you know it sort of spun out of that conversation. And so we started to kick the tires on the publicly traded manufactured 
uh, housing companies. An interesting thing about legacy, they take the cash flow from their, their manufactured piece and run it through operating activities to hit it over to the loan book instead of putting it through investing activities. When an analyst would screen for this, it would show up as if they don't have any cash flow. And so that intrigued us right away because we were like, oh, well, here's something that is probably being missed by everyone who uses a screen instead of you know, the old school sort of analyst way of actually pulling up documents and reading them. That got us intrigued. As we started to go through it, uh, we realized that you know, this, is, this is a company that is growing um, and doing very well. However, their communications with the investing world is atrocious. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was horrible. I, th- I think their uh, second quarter uh, release basically said, hey, everything's fine. And here are the numbers. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, we can go pull it up and take a look. It's, it, I think it was two or three sentences. You know, that's going to scare off. <laughs> that's going to scare off the investment community. Uh, coupled with, you know, they, they've been in business since I believe 1982 or 1983, but had of only gone public in the last three years. When they first went public within six months, they had fired their auditor and turned over their entire C-suite, um, except for the, the two founders, Ken and Kurt. These are pain points that we're drawn to. We, we don't run away from these things. We're like, oh, well, this could be really interesting. So frankly, trying to get in touch with them was difficult. We had to, we had to go through some back channels. And, and finally, um, the CFO reached out to us and said, basically, hey, we heard you're trying to look, get a hold of us. We're like, yes, we, we want to talk about the company. So we had a, a good conversation. And then they were having their um, annual meeting. And it was going to be closed, so they weren't going to broadcast it or, or talk about it. So we flew down there, and, and by down there, it's uh, Fort Worth, Dallas, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, but they're they're located in Fort Worth, or just outside of Fort Worth. We were the only two investors there. Um, we were the only two outsiders there, frankly. You know, we had met one of the founders, Kurt, for for lunch, Kurt Hodgins, and we had a pleasant conversation, but we had not yet met Ken Shipley. And Ken is the, the chairman. So we go into the meeting and legitimate, you know, cowboy hats and, and, and things of that nature. And, and, and Ken is giving us sort of this, this skeptical look um, as we're going through and, and approving, you know, the, the, various, uh, the various motions being brought forth. Now, it, it should be mentioned that, that Kurt and Kenny own 70% of the equity. So re- regardless of our percentage, we're not going to be able to outvote them. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if, if he was worried that we were going to object or something to, to some of the directors. But at the, at the end of the day, after the meeting, you know, everybody warmed up and they realized that we were, we were there to, to talk to them. Um, and we talked to them about, you know, listen, you should really think about breaking out the manufactured piece and breaking out the lending piece into two separate, two separate reports. And you know they, they haven't done that yet. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's, it's a little unclear. But um, when they realized we weren't trying to go in and, and tell them how to run their operations, operations that have been run for you know, 40 years here, they really started to be receptive to us. 
that day we we went on a tour of uh, their facilities and had great conversations with you know a little bit more of the rank and file employees. We met with uh, one of the general managers and we talked about supply chain issues, if they were real or not. Uh, we talked about labor issues, which are very real, particularly in, in that area. There's a, uh, an Amazon warehouse that is, you know, warehouse does not do it justice. This is, it's, it's a skyscraper on its side, basically. And so, you know, they're, they're competing with a bunch of other people for labor. And that's one of their pain points and, and has been for years, but in particular, the last couple of years with COVID, it, it's, been, it's been difficult. However, um, they've been able to push all their costs through because of the demand that they're seeing. We had a great, you know, great conversations with them. And then that evening, um, after their, their uh, director's dinner, they invited David and I out for a couple of drinks and we met with them and, and we started talking about IR and, and how abysmal, you know, their communication has been. And, and if you're trying to really reach the investment community, you, you have to sharpen it up a little bit. So they were coming at it from the point of view of we've run this company for 40 years and we're really good at what we do. And if you want to hop on, then hop on. And if you don't, then don't. And I, I understand that attitude, except they trade at, at half of the multiples of their peers. And they were each selling about $2 million of stock a month ish. It should be you know, mentioned that they, they, at the time, they each took about $50,000 a year in salary. And so they were, in, the, in their minds, they were trying to create liquidity by, by selling and also by diversification, some diversification for their own personal estate planning, which, you know, they're both in their 70s. And so that makes, well, Kurt, Kurt is 67 and, and Kenny's, I guess, 72. You know, for, from that standpoint, we said, well, you're not really creating liquidity and you're kind of confusing the market because you're selling and you're selling at a valuation from our model that is about 50% of where you should be. If you communicated a little bit better, your, your stock might go up and you would be making more money. And so they took that to the heart. And, and in fact, the directors did as well. So this just happened at the end of November. We've had great conversations with them through December. Uh, Kurt just put out a uh, a new compensation plan where he has he had stopped selling three months ago uh, his shares. They've locked him up for another four years, and he has some stock incentives um, that that only trigger if essentially the stock goes up by fifty percent and then a hundred percent more or less. We like that. It has key man risk, right? Kurt and Kenny are it. So we told them too, you know, the investment world wants to know what happens if Kurt or Kenny disappear. And so by having Kurt come out and say, well, I'm definitely going to be here for another four years, you know, you don't have to worry about me. That was well, well received. But he also knows that he has to start bringing some other people into the fold, into the, into the C-suite fold. So, you know, that, that was one of the more nitty gritty sort of meetings that we've had where you're, you're, you're going through and it's a great operation. I mean, they do a fantastic job. Um, they have the macro behind them and we're not trying to tell them what to do, right? I mean, an easy, an easy piece would be, Hey, go to a bank and, and borrow more money for your loans. And, you know, why are you taking it out of, out of the manufacturing side and then buy back your shares, right? Or something like that. But, but they won't do that or they're, they'll consider it, but they're conservative because they've been through, you know, the, the late eighties um, when, when there was massive consolidation of, of smaller homes and they've survived and been profitable 
according to them, every year except for one year out of the 40. From that standpoint, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to argue. And frankly, the things that they need to do are, are sort of just telling their story better. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. So it's not, it's, we're not getting into their operations. We're not telling them to hire people or change things. You know, these are people who've, who've been doing this in their specialty for, for much longer than, than we've, we've looked at the stock. So we're going to default to them. Um, and we're going to, we're going to continue to monitor and, and, and see how they do. Frankly, it's it's something that we see 100% upside in if the market can realize some multiple expansion. But even if they don't, they're going to continue to just pump out these houses. Um, if they can do something about their labor and labor costs, which they may or may not be able to do, um, depending on their appetite, again, for risk, if, you know, if, if they opened up something in Mexico or even just trying to create another manufacturing plant, which again, they're very conservative. I don't know if they would do that. It's, it's expensive to do those sorts of things. And then you still have to fill it with labor. But they also have an, another little, I don't want to give too much too much um, emphasis on it because people get really excited. And, and that's, you know, the value guys, the pure value guys really like it because they, they own a bunch of land, raw land. They own it the areas that people care about are right outside of Dallas, right out of San, outside of San Antonio, and right out of, outside of Austin. And they are developing them slowly, very slowly, um, into their own manufactured housing parks. And by slowly, I mean they're getting you know, ten permits at a time here uh, for a lot of acreage. But at the end of the day, you could, in theory, either have something that could be spun off as a REIT, or have you know something that's beholden to you as a demand entity within your own within your own company, but that's that's years off. And and frankly, in in our model and our thinking, we you know we, we add about two dollars a share to that. When you know if you were talking to to the pure value guys, they might they might add nine to ten dollars on it. But we just think it's it's too far off. But it's again it's it's another little asset that's hidden within there. I wouldn't necessarily put that in the babushka doll piece uh, because it's not growing. It's just kind of a slow, a slow positive, if you will. I looked on their website, and I have to say the um, the houses they built they're very attractive. That's Kurt. Um, so Kenny's from from Texas, and, and Kurt, I believe, is from Michigan. He went to the School of Engineering in Michigan, and then went to um, University of Austin Law School in in, in Texas. And uh, he designs the houses himself. And, you know, we were able to see the, the 10 various SKUs that they had available. And they really are. I mean, you wouldn't know you're in a manufactured home when you go inside. They're, they're, they're beautifully done. The level of detail that they put in and the thinking around the end customer really is, you know, I sound like I'm selling for them. I'm, I'm not. Uh, but it really was impressive. So, for instance... They made sure that uh, a certain room would have six inches more so that when you open the closet door, um, you wouldn't hit your vanity or your, your nightstand next to your bed um, and that you would have room for a nightstand in the bedroom. And, you know, talking to talking to the general manager and, and Kurt, he said, you know, oftentimes you go in and it's three or four inches, but you're able to actually have a vanity in a bathroom where you can store things underneath, whereas in other manufactured houses, you can't. So they are very thoughtful. They are very thoughtful. And they're designed for warm weather. That's the other thing. So they're 
you know, they're, they're selling in Texas, they're selling in Florida, they're selling in Georgia, um, they're selling in Louisiana. I mean, technically you, you can get them anywhere, but th- that's really where the states that they're really selling into. And those are the states that are attracting a lot of new people. Again, you know, we're not macro, but we look at sort of the, uh, the tailwinds pushing this trend and, you know, lower costs uh, coupled with a demographic shift into, you know, one level living and into warmer climates. You know, all these things add up to, to be pretty positive. You know, I wouldn't put this in a category, you know, th- th- there's been talk like, oh, maybe they'll sell and someone will buy them. Uh, maybe. Um, I don't see that at this point, particularly with a new contract. So if people are holding this in, in anticipation of an M&A deal, I would not get that excited. But you know, never say never. If the price is right, anybody will sell. This is their baby and, and they grew it and they're very proud of it. It, it, really, it really is neat. Now, if they can just you know, give a little more detail and be a little, a little more willing to talk to investors, I think that the, the stock will will continue to to do well. It's it's done well in the last six months. Um, and honestly, it's it has another 100% to go. Yeah, it's a fascinating company. Yeah, th- thanks, Tim, for sharing that one. And what's the other company you'd like to talk about? There's a company called eDreams, right? And it's uh, based in Spain. It's a, it's a twofer. It's a social pariah and it's an ugly duckling. It's an online travel agency. European trial online travel agency. And if, if people know anything about online travel agencies, they've kind of become a commodity, right? You're, you're really now, your biggest competition might be Google. Um, and yet that's the, your number one ad provider, right? Because people, the first thing people do is they go to Google, they type in where they want to be and where they want to go. And Google spit out either sometimes a, another OTA, but oftentimes its own little its own little travel itinerary for you that it's put together. So it's, it's, a, it, it's a symbiotic relationship. It, it, it's not very good. And so five years ago or so, eDreams came up with the idea to, to create Prime, which is a loyalty app, basically, or membership app. They have right now, they're the number one OTA for flights in Europe. Um, they're twice as big as, as the largest player there. And they're the second largest globally, but they still only account for three and a half percent of European traffic and uh, 30% of the OTA market in Europe. Aside from being big enough and starting out with this prime subscription service, COVID hits. Not not a great time to be in the travel business for the last two years. Um, And that's actually what drove David and I to, to uh, check them out because we launched June 1st, 2021. At that point, the COVID recovery plays had already started. You know, you had Live Nation and a few of the other venue places uh, already trading above 2019 levels. Um, but at that point, Europe was about two months behind the US in reopening um, and in, in, in stock appreciation, frankly. And so uh, we started to really be drawn to things that were happening over there that we could take advantage of to sort of replicate what had already happened. That led us to eDreams. Uh, we read a, a research before a report um, from Grizzly Rock, which is a, someone who's, who's online and we're very intrigued. We started to kick the tires. We started to talk to as many people as, as possible. And we were both like, oh man, you know, are, are we really going to buy a European OTA? And uh, 
and that's probably a good side, right? When you're, <laughs> when you're like, Eesh, we're looking at this thing and I really don't want to own this. Oftentimes, oftentimes it's best to keep going, but but in this case, it was, we were kind of like, well, there might be something here. Let's let's dig into it. Um, and and we found that the Prime is the whole key to this. Prime, their their loyalty membership program, it's their massive differentiator. Basically, so it's fifty five euro a year, and you get discounts on your travel. You get a special customer service line, and you get access to to special deals here and there. And it's not just, you know, if John and Tim are flying together, if you book the trip, I would get the, the discount as well. Currently, there are 2 million Prime members, right? And so that goal two years ago uh, was their 2023 goal. And they added about 500,000 subscribers in Q2 of their 2022 because their, their fiscal year, June 1st. So it's... It, you know, through September 2021, they basically added 500,000. And if you go back during that time, that was still pretty much in the meat of a lot of lockdowns um, in Europe. People were getting antsy as different countries opened up under different uh, requirements. People started to book trips. To, to be able to do that really speaks volumes in, in our mind because they don't, they don't advertise, you know, there's de minimis advertising. They're not out there pushing Facebook ads, right? They're, what they're trying to do is actually get away from, from the Googles of, of having to, to pay for the, that high cost of acquisition of these customers. So for 2025, and again, that's their ending June, they're looking for a target of 7.25 million subscribers. You know, that's massive growth, 3x, over 3x. Uh, for now, why does that matter? Why, you know, why do we care? 55 euro, 7 million, yeah, that's great. But what it really is, it's the cost of customer acquisition. According to them, you have a 30% lower cost. Prime members also book 2.7 times the amount in year one versus non-prime. When you're thinking about it, you're having the same customer book 2.7 times without having to pay for them through Google to be acquired, whereas a non-prime person you, you do. Um, and then in the second year, you know you get another subscription fee. And uh, if that person has, has rejoined, they go 2.9 times more. It's a huge cost savings for them. According to them, again, it's for a repeat customer, it's, it ends up being 75% less. You have a stickier customer, you have more loyalty, a repeat customer coming in. Accor again, this is according to, to their metrics and their numbers. Value to them is two and a half times that over a non-prime member over a two-year period. When you're looking at that and thinking about it vis-a-vis -vis other OTAs, it resonates really well. E-Dreams, stepping back for a second, its old iteration was not nice. It was not good. It had, it had a failed IPO. It had a failed takeover bid. It had a CEO that, you know, I would put it not necessarily, well, no, I guess under, under sort of unethical moves where, you know, if you were trying to fly British Airways and you typed in British Airways, 
eDreams may have a clone of British Airways uh, website. You might, you know, you might accidentally book eDreams instead of British Airways and obviously at, at a premium. Those people were thrown out and the new CEO came in and said, look, uh, we're going to be a tech company. We're not going to be an OTA company because OTAs are commodities and our commodity is eroding. Um, Google is taking our bigger and bigger share of, of our customer. Um, we need to do something. And he came up with the, the prime membership. They beat 95% of the time on flights versus the top 10 airlines and the other three OTAs. That's the reason why people tend to join. Then when you go and you look at why they stay, it's because of the ease of booking in tech and uh, the customer service that they get. And you know th- this is all, if you go to their website, you can download their, their investor day and, and it's all certified by KPMG and, and other people. So this isn't just them saying, yeah, this is, you know, people love us. It's, it really is, uh, what is what is happening out there. We flew over there. We met management. Um, we hung out during their investor day. We saw their their tech. We saw their uh, their passion. We saw their their algorithms in motion, and it, it really is something to behold. So they have you know a five year head start on their competitors. So if someone else wanted to come in and say, okay, well I'm going to start a loyalty app, right? Because that's generally what the the pushback is. It's not something you can just turn around and do. It's much more complicated than, than people believe because if you are trying to use an app to book you know, over 662 airlines and, and 2.1 million hotel rooms, which is what they, they have in their, in their universe, you, you just can't do it day one and, and try to beat them. You know, this is a company that, that is a social pariah, um, but is also an ugly duckling because the reinvestment and frankly... You know, to to be fair, they did not disclose the economics of their of their prime membership up until November. They would say basically, look, it's profitable, trust us. But you and I both know that if we give someone a hundred dollars and and they only need to spend eighty, then that's not a good business model, right? So, um, but it turns out that that was not the case, and and what they said was true. They went through their model um, and and basically explained the cost of acquisition being put down and the value, the long term value of these of these subscribers. Their goal of of having you know seven point two five million subscribers at, at their you know fiscal year end of of twenty twenty five, that's that's another hundred percent upside um, from where they're being valued right now. We do think that they deserve to be traded at a premium from other online travel agencies. Some people would say, you know, they want they should have a, a valuation of like a Netflix or an Amazon, and, and you know, I'm I'm not there with that. I'm not too far away from it. Thinking that you know that 100% upside from here is definitely something that uh, that seems achievable, particularly since in the last five years, uh, the C-suite has done everything that they said they were going to do. Every single metric that they hit, every single goal that they put out for themselves, they have hit in, in both in, in the financial realm and in the subscriber base realm. So um, we're pretty excited about them. And we think that as COVID and, and Omicron either uh, dissipate or we come to some sort of new normal, um, that again, this, this, is a, this is a company that has great tailwinds behind it. 
Yeah, I can't help but agree, especially as you say, when COVID starts to fade away at these lockdowns. Thanks, Tim, for sharing those two companies. I think they're both fascinating. It's amazing where you find these little companies. Well, these not so small, but these companies tucked away. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's, it's fun too, right? Because I mean, the juxtaposition between legacy and, and e-dreams is, is massive. It, I mean, it really is the, the difference between how, how investors are treated and, and are thought about. Um, and again, not to, not to beat up on poor legacy. I think they, they're, they get it and they're, they're starting to really turn around and do a fantastic job. But eDreams had it down, right? They, they were welcoming. They, they showed you, they opened the kimono, right? And, and, and invited you in. They didn't make things difficult and they're, they're sending you information. So it's just this, this interesting, lovely world that, that we get to invest in and, and just to have different business models, but the different people behind the business models that are really, it makes the job fun. So where can um, people go to find out more about you and Immersion Investments? So they can find me on Twitter at uh, BoringPMGuy, and they can find my partner, uh, David Polanski, at uh, David H. Polanski on Twitter. Um, or you can go to the immersioninvest.com and uh, send us a contact or, or go into our contact page and, and just send us a note and that'll be directed towards us. Tim, thanks so much for coming onto the show. It's been a um, pleasure to listen to you. Yeah, John, this was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it.